Our Father, please help us to hear the truth about you in the next few moments. Help us to understand these difficult words. And help us to have faith in you, to see how powerful and glorious you are. And may we leave then this, this morning full of faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this is a very strange story, a strange passage this morning, and it's not immediately obvious what the meaning of it is. So it's going to take us a little bit longer than usual to get to the bottom of it. In our first reading this morning that we had, we had Jesus arrive in Jerusalem as the king, come to his city, come to his capital, the Christ in the city of God. And entering the city, he surveyed the temple, looked around, the house of God. And do you see there in verse 11, he returns back home after he has a look at the temple. He goes back over the Mount of Olives to his temporary home, a place called Bethany. And you can see there on the map, on the screen, the route that he would have taken. On the next day, he came from Bethany and he comes across the Mount of Olives again to Jerusalem. And on the way, he sees a fig tree in leaf, but not in fruit. So he cursed the fig tree, verse 14. And then verse 15, he goes into the temple and he drives out those who were buying and selling there. He drives out the money changers and those who were selling animals. And he declares the judgment of God on the temple. As Isaiah and Jeremiah had said hundreds of years before, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then finally, once more, he leaves the city and he heads over, presumably back to Bethany, where he was staying. Because the next day, he retraces his steps over the Mount of Olives again, and Peter notices, verse 20, that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed has withered. Now, the fact that they're crisscrossing the Mount of Olives is important, as we're going to see in a little while. This is not the Mount of Olives. As a child, that's what you might have thought. How did Jesus and the disciples clamber over the Mount of Olives with all the olives uh, falling away beneath their feet? Well, I'm being a bit childish because I'm trying to draw your attention to this Mount of Olives because it's important. I don't want you to think that Jesus and the disciples just wandered from Jerusalem to Bethany and that's it. Now, Jesus and the disciples went over and over and over the Mount of Olives, and that's important. Now, what about all this strange stuff about faith? Peter notices that the fig tree has withered, verse 21. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus gives this strange response. What does he say in verse 22? Have faith in God. Well, what does he mean by that? Of course we should have faith in God, but why does Jesus say it at this point? Why does he say it in response to the question about the fig tree? It doesn't really make sense, does it? What does Jesus mean when he says, have faith in God here? Is Peter supposed to have faith that God is going to curse more fig trees? Is Peter supposed to have faith in God that God is a God who controls nature? Is he supposed to have faith in God that God is a God who performs miracles? Is Peter supposed to have faith in God that he too will curse fig trees? What does Jesus mean here by have faith in God? Well, maybe if we read the next couple of verses, it will become clear. Or maybe not. Because actually when we read the next couple of verses, it becomes even more strange. 
In these few verses from verse 22 to 25, he seems to move from one topic to another, and they seem unrelated. The fig tree is withered, and he tells Peter to have faith in God, and then he talks about faith that can move mountains, verse 23. And then he talks about asking things in prayer, and then he talks about forgiveness. And maybe you're thinking that poor old Mark was sitting there right in his gospel, and he just had a few of these things that Jesus said left over. And he thought, I'll stick them in here at chapter 11, and no one will notice, because they probably won't read that far, and no one will ask any questions. There's all this random stuff in verse 23 about moving mountains. What's that about? What is Jesus promising here? Is he promising the disciples that they too will move mountains, literal physical mountains? Is he promising the disciples that they will move mountains? Yes, but not literal ones, but just metaphorical ones. You know, the griefs and the hurts and the disappointments in life. Have enough faith and they'll just go. Or is Jesus promising the disciples that they will move spiritual mountains? Sins and temptations and illnesses and diseases. Have faith and they'll go. Is that what he's saying? What kind of mountains is Jesus talking about here? What kind of mountains are the disciples going to move? And what does Jesus mean when he promised in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Ever seen anything like that? Does that mean I can just name it and claim it? I quite fancy a new car. Please give me a new car, and oh, it happens. And now that I've got a new car, well, I'd quite fancy a car parking space at Aldi. Name it and claim it. And now that I've got the car parking space, I'd quite fancy some more money to spend when I go into Aldi. Name it and claim it. Believe and it will be yours. Is that what Jesus is saying? It's a very strange set of promises from Jesus. And if we're going to understand what he's really talking about here, we need to go into the context of in what context he says these things to make sense of it. We need to go back to the fig tree And we need to come to terms with the reality that Jesus actually cursed a literal fig tree. And that literal physical fig tree actually withered. And the disciples reported Jesus doing this, not metaphorically or symbolically or spiritually, but literally and physically. In fact, not only is it physical and literal, but it is symbolic because all the miracles of Jesus are symbolic. Because all the miracles of Jesus in Mark's gospel are pointers back to the Old Testament. They're all fulfillments of pictures in the Old Testament. So he feeds the multitudes, he feeds the 5,000, and it makes us think of Moses and the manna from heaven. He walks on the water, he crosses the water, and it makes us think of the crossing of the Red Sea. We have all these miracles, and then they point back to these pictures in the Old Testament. Well, what is the significance here? Do we recall anything about fig trees in the Old Testament? And why talk about moving mountains? Well, we need to pay attention to the context that Jesus does these things in. The whole Bible context. If we ignore that, then we've just got a random act of violence against a poor fig tree, don't we? And the most famous atheist in the 20th century was a man called Bertrand Russell, and he wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And the the strange thing is that Bertrand Russell sort of honed in on this miracle. 
And he said, you know, Jesus curses this fig tree. And Jesus is just stupid. Because Jesus should have known that the fig tree wasn't in season. And actually, Jesus is really uh, wicked. Because he's so damaging to this poor fig tree that didn't deserve it. So how do we respond to Bertrand Russell? Well, the first thing that we say to him is, let's go to Palestine and let's ask the gardener in Palestine how things work. Well, during the year, uh, the fig trees produced these little nubs. They were like the size of almonds and they were very tasty. And people would walk along the road and they'd sort of pick off the nubs and have them as a little meal along the way. And the nubs would come before the leaves. And then once the leaves came, you'd have the, the proper figs. And so Jesus comes to this tree and he sees the leaves. And so you'd expect the nubs to be there already. That's what he wants to eat. But there are no nubs on the tree because the tree is fruitless. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so Jesus curses it. That's the first thing that Bertrand Russell wasn't interested in. He wasn't interested in trying to understand the Bible because he wanted to carry on living a life of disobedience and immorality. But the second thing that Bertrand Russell uh, needs to turn his attention to is the context of the events in Mark 11. What else is happening around this story of the fig tree? Well, the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree are separated, aren't they? If you look at it, by Jesus' judgment of the temple. Jesus curses the fig tree, he judges the temple, and then we see the fig tree is withered. And I don't know what a fig sandwich tastes like. I don't know if it's my cup of tea, but Mark loves these sandwiches. He gives us them all the time. An event starts, then another event interrupts, and then a third, and then the, the first event finishes. And what Mark is saying is, the one in the middle kind of sheds light on the two events on either side. And the ones either side shed light on the one in the middle. And if you're going to understand what Mark is saying, you need to pay attention to the context, what's going on. Well, the obvious symbolism is that Jesus finds Jerusalem full of show, like the fig tree in leaf, but without any fruit. Not ready for the coming of the Lord. Not producing the fruit for which God planted his city. And this becomes even more clear when we see what Micah, an Old Testament prophet, said. This is God speaking through Micah. What misery is mine. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. But there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. Jesus comes on the fig tree and he craves those little buds to eat, but he finds none. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. They all conspire together. The day of your punishment has come. The day God visits you. He comes to the people of God, and the people of God are not ready. He desires the fruit of the fig, but there is no fruit on the tree. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to the city of God as the king. He comes to the people of God, and do you think they're ready for him? Do they welcome him? No, they're going to kill him. They're going to reject him. In fact, from next week on, we're going to see the leaders in Jerusalem pick fights with Jesus, fight after fight, 
and they set traps for Jesus, and they set tests for him, and they want to catch him out and they want to put him to death. They want rid of Jesus. Evil men conspiring together just as Micah said. So in the midst of all of this, the disciples see that the fig tree has withered. And they see that the temple has now been condemned. And they point out the withering and Jesus says, have faith in God. Now is the time to have faith. Now is the time to trust. Now is not the time to lose faith, to lose your confidence. Now is not the time to be double-minded and wavering. Now is the time we've been heading for for the past three years, he says to his disciples, because I am heading into Jerusalem and I'm going face-to-face with God's enemies. This is the moment when the battle commences. Have faith in God. Now is the time. If you ask, he will move the mountain for you. Now what is all this talk about moving mountains? Christians haven't moved a mountain in 2,000 years. Do you know engineers can move mountains and the mining companies can move mountains, but no Christian in the past 2,000 years has ever moved a mountain. But when you look at Mark 11, verse 23, we see that he's talking not about faith that moves mountains, but faith that moves this mountain. Why on earth would Jesus be interested in Christian people moving mountains. Is that why Jesus came into the world? So that we can move mountains around? No, Jesus is not talking about moving mountains. He's talking about moving the Mount of Olives. Why? Well, because of the Old Testament. Because of the picture that's being fulfilled. And it's a picture that's in Zechariah, and it's incredibly important. Let me just describe it. In Zechariah chapter 14, you have a picture of the last judgment. And in Zechariah 14, you have all the nations of the world. They gather around Jerusalem, and they besiege the city, and they attack the city. And the people of God are holed up in this city. And it's awful. A a, a terrible plague breaks out in the city, and a third of the people die. And it looks like all is lost, and there is no hope. When suddenly God intervenes, And God splits the Mount of Olives in two. And he makes a path out of the city so that the people can find refuge and rescue and a place of safety. And God flattens out the mountains around Jerusalem. And he makes this wide plain that's totally flat. And then he raises Jerusalem up on a hill. And all the nations of the world are seen coming in, flooding into Jerusalem. Because... My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The nations gather in to worship at the temple. But the key point in Zechariah 14 is that the Mount of Olives is split in two. Let me just read a few of those verses. The people are surrounded. They're dying in the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. And the whole land south of Jerusalem will become a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place, and it will be inhabited, and never again will be destroyed. 
Jerusalem will be secure. It is a picture of the end of the world when the Messiah comes and the great battle rages and it involves the moving of the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus, the Messiah, comes to Jerusalem because the great climax of his life has come. He enters as the Christ, as the Messiah. He comes to his temple in judgment on it because it is not working properly. It is not a house of prayer for all the nations. They're charging the nations money to come in and they're putting barriers in the way before God. And as he makes his way to his city, to his temple, he desires to eat the fruit of the fig tree, but he finds it wanting. All show and no fruit. So he curses it and it withers. For the judgment of God is about to start. And the judgment of God always starts with the house of God. And just as Micah described, it is going to look like all is lost. It is going to appear that the Christ has been defeated when he is nailed to that cross. When he is handed over to be killed, all is lost, but God is going to intervene. So have faith in God, he says. Keep your faith in God. It's going to look very grim over the next week from Monday to Friday. It is going to look like defeat for the disciples. Especially on Friday, have faith in God, he says. As the temple is judged, as the Christ comes, as the judgment begins, now is the time to ask God to move the mountain. The judgment is coming. Now is the time to pray and say, God, we need a way of escape from this judgment. How will we survive unless you save us? And he says, ask without doubting, without double-mindedness. How wonderful at this climactic moment the disciples are reassured that their prayer will be heard and they will receive the salvation if they believe that they have received it. Now here is a simple question. If you knew that this afternoon Jesus was coming in judgment, what would you pray for? If at three o'clock you knew Jesus was coming, what would you pray for? A trip to Barbados. Well, there's no point in praying for that. You're not going to have time to enjoy it. A new house, maybe. Or a three-week cruise. Totally pointless to pray for those things, isn't it? Maybe you'd pray just that, you know, today would go well. I'd get the work done that I need to do. Tomorrow's school would go well. But what's the point if Jesus has come in in judgment at three o'clock? What would you pray? Maybe you'd pray for a cure for your backache. Well, I'm pretty sure when Jesus comes and takes us into his new creation, you won't have a sore back. So there's no point in praying for that either. If Jesus is coming in judgment, what should you be praying? You see, we mustn't take verses 23 and 24 out of their context. Out of the context in which Jesus is saying these things. Out of the context of the fig tree out of the context of the temple, out of the context of Christ coming to Jerusalem, and out of the context of the Old Testament prophets, Micah and Zechariah. Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. He's talking about judgment, and he's talking about the rejection of the people who have rejected him. 
and he's talking in terms of the prophets. That is why he goes on to talk about forgiveness, isn't it? Because if the judgment of the world is about to come, then whatever else you need to pray for, forgiveness would be useful, wouldn't it? Can I suggest to you that forgiveness would be a very handy thing between now and three o'clock if Jesus is coming? And if you're going to start praying for forgiveness, then it's time we started forgiving one another. Because unless we forgive one another, we're not going to receive forgiveness from God. So there may be some people that we need to phone up this afternoon before three o'clock and have that conversation and say, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And by the way, Jesus is coming at three o'clock. Now, forgiveness lies at the very heart of what we need to be dealing with, isn't it? It's madness to pray for the coming of the kingdom if we're not going to be forgiven. And we're not going to be forgiven if we're not forgiving one another. You see, you take verses 23 and 24, lift them out of their context, and you can make them sound like it's praying for work tomorrow and school tomorrow and life going well. And I want to suggest that Jesus is not telling his disciples to pray for those things. God has come to his city in judgment against it. He's heading into direct conflict with its leaders. And he says, pray for forgiveness because judgment is coming. What would you pray at this point? Well, here's a few things we could pray. Our Father, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the bread of heaven. Forgive us our sins as we forgive one another. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Wouldn't those be wonderful things to pray if what Jesus says is true? That is what moving the mountain is all about. Seeking a way out of the judgment. Seeking a way of salvation and a way of forgiveness. Now, I find that this passage is a great encouragement to have confidence in God. Do you ever feel like I don't know, we're just surrounded by the world and the world seems to be getting the better of us as law after law is changed and things seem to just, the beliefs and the values of Christianity seem to be rejected as it becomes harder and harder to just even publicly admit that you are a Christian. Very easy to become depressed and disappointed in this world. Harder and harder. But do we become depressed and disappointed when we see what it says here? No, because God can move the mountain. Our God built the mountain. He can move it. Our God is bringing his judgment, but he's made a way of salvation, a way of escape. Great confidence in our God. Jesus says, have faith in God. Our God is sending his son again as king. He sent him to die on the cross and to rise again. He sent him again to rule over this world and put to an end all the evil and rebellion. Our God is turning the mountains into plains and bringing people from all the nations to him. Great confidence in our God. Have faith in God, Jesus says. Be confident and pray. Don't be double-minded and waver. 
And yet we mustn't pray for these things if we're not willing to forgive. If you're not willing to forgive others, then don't expect God to forgive you. But if you're conscious that God is coming in judgment, and if you're conscious that we're all going to meet the Lord Jesus in the death that we all face, then get forgiveness right. Whatever else in the Christian life you get wrong, get forgiveness right. Because it's the only way that you and I are going to escape and stand before him. So let us pray for that now. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the great victory he won in Jerusalem through his death and through his mighty resurrection. We thank thank you that by his death, we can be forgiven. By his resurrection, we can have new life. Please help us, Father, as we live in this world, as we go through the struggles of grief and disappointment, as we see our society turn their backs on you, as we feel the lostness of those around us. Help us to keep our confidence in your kingdom coming, in your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, in your name being honoured. And in particular, Father, give to us that forgiving spirit that you have, that we will forgive others as you forgive that we will not stand on the last day unforgiven, but that holding on to the Lord Jesus and his death for our sins, we would know your forgiveness on that day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.